There has been no shortage of research products for virologists in 2020. The cause of coronavirus, how it spreads and how the human race might beat it are all being investigated by a huge number of universities and research centres. And in the last few weeks there have been some big leaps in scientists' understanding of the illness. Mutations have been identified and studies into large populations have helped to improve our knowledge of how herd immunity might build up. Meanwhile, drug and vaccine trials are progressing incredibly quickly. And um, we are trying to bring a 10 years development cycle into 10 months, literally. This week, the University of Oxford announced its first set of positive results from its vaccine trial. We can see that the vaccine does induce a robust immune response um, in the volunteers. To run through the scientific and pharmaceutical progress, we have spoken to the IC's healthcare correspondent, Harriet Knarfeld, and we'll also be speaking to Michael Taylor about how recent scientific progress has had a big impact on company share prices and how you can trade them. It's not only the drugs companies which are in high demand at the moment, as shown by this week's trading update from disinfectant company Tristel. I have spoken to the company's chief executive Paul Swinney and chief financial officer Liz Dixon to discuss the company's recent trading and outlook. And I have spoken to Phil Oakley also about Tristel and why the market didn't really like this latest update. I'm John Human. And I'm Megan Boxall. Welcome to the Investment Hour. Hi Harriet, thanks for joining me to give a bit of an update on scientific progress. So, I mean, where are we? Obviously, we have spoken relatively recently. It was only, I think we did our last healthcare podcast six weeks ago, but the progress is so rapid, both in terms of understanding of coronavirus and treating it. Um, yeah, where are we with, uh, with that progress? Well, well, yeah, as you said, um, progress is unbelievably rapid. And I think scientists are having to learn a lot about this virus that obviously has only just emerged. So, they're really having to study in real time the impact that it's having on patients and kind of try to react to that in the labs where they're trying to develop treatments or, or potentially a vaccine. There have been a few developments even in the last few days um, around potential vaccine candidates, but also um, treatments that uh, companies hope will help to sort of alleviate the symptoms of the disease, COVID-19. Let's start with the um, let's start with the vaccine because obviously that is that's really what the most significant thing is, isn't it? That's the thing that's going to help us out of of the situation ultimately. Yes, absolutely. So um, the exciting news um, this week actually came from the UK. So Oxford University, which is working with AstraZeneca on a potential vaccine, um, said that it had. It, sorry, let me start again. <laughs> Oxford University, which is working on a potential vaccine with AstraZeneca. Um, released some early stage trial data uh, in the last few days, days, which suggests that the potential vaccine they're working on produced a good immune response in trial participants and didn't have any obvious or immediately recognisable safety problems. And that's really what this early stage trial is trying to establish, that it won't harm or in any way have very bad side effects on people if mm-hmm. the vaccine were to prove successful. So it's checked the first box in terms of, of exactly. drug development. Exactly. Um, and... I'll try and summarise it very briefly, but in terms of the immune response, they found that the vaccine worked on both sides of the immune system. So on the one hand, it induced a T cell response, which is that pertains to the white blood cells in your system, which attack infected cells. And it also induced an antibody response and antibodies are the proteins in the blood, which develop naturally in response to infection. Um, But the trial was based on around a thousand healthy adults, I think, one of the key findings is really that it didn't produce horrible side effects. It's interesting actually as well that that like dual response with the both sides of the immune system, 
they, they were talking that, that maybe could be significant because they're worried that coronavirus might mutate um, as other as other viruses do. And um, there's been a few, I mean, there's been a lot of research in the last few weeks, there's a lot of, out of, a lot of universities. Do you know if... Um, do you know if the fact that, that this vaccine works on both the T-cells and the antibodies, do you know if that's significant for the fact that, that the coronavirus might actually mutate? Well, I think it's something they're definitely having to monitor. Um, as you say, there are lots of different mutations, and that's the case with all sorts of viruses. My understanding is that there's one mutation which has become more prevalent. Right. Uh, and I think I read last week that that was actually, that, that mutation of the virus was the one which is now sort of circulating most prevalently around Europe and I think mm-hmm. other parts of the world. Um, it, it will, I'm sure, have an impact on um, on how they develop the vaccines and potentially treatments. Um, on the antibody side of things, um, there are actually a lot of inter- interesting treatments in develop around the world based on potentially using um, recovered patients' antibodies. Obviously, there are questions about whether they'll work if they've been infected with a different, different mutation, different strand of the virus. Uh, so vaccines, progress is being made, uh, potentially faster progress is being made in the treatment side of things. And there was some big news on that front this week as well. There was. So I think up until this point, one of the most excitement, exciting treatments that people have been talking about is Gilead's in America and um, its remdesivir antiviral treatment. Um, but more recently, it was actually a very small UK company called Synergen, which I know will be spoken about later in the podcast. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to talk to Michael Taylor about that because Synergen had quite a share price movement this week and Michael Taylor, a trader, uh, was pretty enticing for him, a 500% share price move in one day. <laughs> so what actually happened? What caused that share price move? So Synergen um, has said that positive trial results for its experimental COVID-19 medicine could potentially signal, signal a major breakthrough in the treatment of the disease. Um, it is a microcap company, um, hence one of the reasons why the shares have moved by so much. Um, but it had essentially been monitoring the effects of this drug, which it calls SNG001, which is an inhaled formula of a drug which is actually already widely used and approved in injectable form called interferon beta. And they've been trialling that in hospitalised coronavirus patients. Um, the data that they've put out hasn't been peer reviewed. It's really early. Um, but it so far suggests that the odds of developing severe disease, um, potentially requiring ventilation, were reduced by 79% for those receiving their inhaled drug compared with those who are given a placebo product. Ah. And the way it works is that they are um, uh, using high concentrations of localised inhaled product, which is sort of, uh, it's given to patients via a nebulizer, which is a machine that allows you to breathe in a medicine. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, as I say, it's early days, but um, it was obviously very encouraging. Mm. Um, yeah, it's interesting. It's really, really interesting. And actually, this, this uh, the treatment side of things is interesting because it could have more of an immediate impact. I mean, I know Synergen is still in trials, but it could be more of an immediate impact than the vaccine is, which is uh, it's going to be longer term. Um, but how do you think it could be significant? Could it be genuinely significant in the long term? Will companies continue to make money from coronavirus medicines? I mean, I suppose Gilead's results coming up, up will help sort of put a few numbers. I mean, they'll be the first numbers, really, of a company that's actually making money from coronavirus. Do you, do you think it like making money from coronavirus is something that's going to continue? Well, I think um, definitely on the vaccine side of things, um, using, I mean, I think a number of companies have said that they're, even if they do develop a, potent, a successful vaccine, they won't seek to make money from it during the pandemic. 
Um, I mean, not least because it would look very bad for them to do so, mm. I think. Um, so it, it's difficult to say because while companies are working on these treatments and vaccines, other sort of more routine forms of healthcare are slowing down. You know, so much resource has been directed towards fighting the pandemic, of course. Um, but that does mean that there are areas of, of companies um, which just aren't seeing the growth they would normally. And one one part of all this is going to be them trying to resume growth um, in those areas. On on the um, on the on the question of whether or not they can make money from treatments, well, I think it was interesting what Synergen said this week, which was that um, we, we had a chat with the, with the CEO. Um, you know, of course, these are early days. The trial, the initial trial, was only I think 101 participants. Obviously, that needs to be expanded before more evidence can be used and before anything can even be can be, can be approved. But um, you know, that there could potentially be other applications for, for that treatment. If it's found to be successful for coronavirus, there's nothing to say it couldn't be tried for other um, types of illness too, other respiratory illnesses. Mm, and that might be the place, or th- those might be the areas in which it, it also makes money. And um, so I think there's a lot to say, you know, that all of the work, all of the research that's going into these different trials could actually lead to various applications for lots of different companies mm. beyond coronavirus. Yeah, that's interesting. And how the, the third strand, I know you've looked at all, all three over the last few months, um, diagnostics. Has there been any progress in the diagnostic side of things? Um, so uh, Abbott Laboratories, I think, is quite an interesting um, example of a, a big company that's working on diagnostics um, for coronavirus. And they had their results uh, just, just over a week ago and they do all sorts of things, including diagnostics. But um, I think they said that in the second quarter, they had $615 million of COVID-19 testing related sales, which obviously didn't exist a year ago for the company. And that's against worldwide total sales of over $7 billion. So, you know, just to put that into perspective, it's not a huge part of, of their revenue, but it's significant. Um, and I think their diagnostic sales are up by about 17% in the first half. Wow. And obviously for a company like Abbott, which does lots of different things, including established pharmaceuticals and medical devices, um, the latter medical devices was down 17%. So there's sort of ups and downs for a company that, that does diagnostics, among other things. But there are also um, smaller companies. And in the UK, obviously, one of the big stories for the last few months has been Novasite, um, which is a French-based company, but, it, but it's listed here as well. And um, they they saw what they um, called a sort of transformational first half, um, because I think it's fair to say that at the beginning of January, not many of us would have heard of Novasite, but they've developed, um, they very early on in the pandemic developed a coronavirus test and they've since developed three more test related products. And um, yeah, they've done un- unbelievably well as a result. I think their sales are up 900%. Wow. But it's really, the question is, you know, can that be sustained? Um, Novasite does other, does other things apart from coronavirus testing, obviously. It did a lot before this, this crisis came along. So other things that it does are clinical and food labs, haematology, serology applications. But I think it said that for now, it expects that demand for COVID testing will last well into 2021. Mm. But yeah, I suppose for the long term investment case, I mean, it's it's very interesting and it's good that they've got forecasts sort of going out that far. But the long term investment case, yeah, that whether or not sales can be sustained is, is certainly a big question for a lot of these companies. And actually, another one we saw this week was Tristel. And I've actually spoken to the chief executive and the chief financial officer of Tristel. And John's going to talk to Phil about Tristel as well, where it's very widely held stock in the UK. And uh, we'll be doing that later. But first... Uh, let's uh, let's drop in to hear what Michael Taylor had to say about Synergen. But thank you very much, Harriet. That was uh, that was really interesting to have a full update. Thanks, Megan. 
So we've heard the news behind St. Airgen's extraordinary gains earlier this week. Um, now I'm going to talk to Michael Taylor about, uh, about what that means from a trading perspective and uh, what, what we can learn from playing similar situations in future. H how are you, Michael? I'm doing well, thanks, John. How are you? I'm all right, thank you. Um, so yeah, it was a big one, wasn't it? Have you ever seen one like this before? A couple of months ago, Motif Bio did 700%, but I think the market cap was about 300k. <laughs> um, so it was not, in this, in this sense, Synergen was, I think it was over 100 before. Um, you know, it was a small cap, so, but it was sizable that you could actually get some, uh, some liquidity in it. Uh, but yeah, it gapped up 100% in the open, which is uh, quite steep. Did you manage to get on board this uh, this momentum? Uh, in the end, yeah. So I didn't actually, uh, I wasn't in it before, but I will never usually take these these bets like oil drills and phase threes. Uh, Synergen was phase two, I think, because if they fail, you know, that is a, a big, big gap down. Um, so I will never take that risk, but rather I'll trade the reaction. So if, if it's a success, you know, there's going to be positive momentum. Uh, if it fails, there's always going to be that puke trade where everyone looks to sell out. Um, it really just crashes, and then you can pick some up on the bounce for a scalp. Uh, so either way, it's it's great to trade this volatility, but you don't actually have to take the initial risk, which is good for me at least. So if you're a long-term holder in these these type of companies, you you run that risk that these essentially binary decisions go against you, and you, you'll you'll see potentially a large chunk of your holding wiped out. Um, but 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 the trading strategy then um, means that there's a lot of opportunity in this space uh, from a money-making perspective, even if you're not in it for the long term. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I was out in and out of Synergen about seven or eight times, long and short. Um, so I didn't do as well as those who were in before. Uh, but you can still get in and, and trade it. And uh, one thing I like to use is the 50 EMA, uh, which I've talked about in the article on the one-minute chart. And this usually acts as a reference point in terms of extreme volatility. So we can see in the chart the price is rising above the 50 EMA. It comes down to test it a couple of times, bounces off, uh, and carries on. So you could have actually made 150% move-to-move uh, if you bought in on the bell and closed at the day's high, which I think was around 240. Um, so, I mean, there, there is opportunity in these things if you can trade them on the intraday. And because there's so much volume, the market makers really narrow the spreads as well. So it's quite easy to get in and out, and you don't really have to worry about there being no bid, um, which is quite nice. So definitely uh, look out for things, big RNSs, where you get lots of volume and lots of volatility. Yeah, you mentioned volume in your magazine piece. You mentioned you're, you're looking at the RNS in, in the morning and, and running the volume mm -hmm. filter. Talk us through what, you, what you're doing there. I'm just trying to find trades, uh, stocks that have large volume, because when there's volume, there's usually a reason for that. And it doesn't really matter if you know the reason or not, but where there's large volume, uh, there might be some volatility. So, for example, the other week we had Boohoo with... Um, I think it was the Sunday Times accusing them of underpaying workers. Um, all of a sudden, the volatility just spikes. Um, so you got huge intraday moves, a lot bigger than the norm. And of course, Boohoo is hugely liquid, so it's not a problem to get in and out. It's sets traded, so you can place orders onto the book as well. So basically, wherever there's volume, there might be a trade. So that's really what I'm looking for. I suppose it's a bit like a surfer. You've got, to, you've got to be on the waves, the volatile waves, to actually surf. 
Um, you know, if that's still water, still share price, you, there's not really much you can do with that. So I guess you, you can say it's like a tool that traders need. Mm. You, you, we talked about Synergen, which is obviously a very positive result. Um, mm. Although I, th- I think your piece, you mentioned, you know, there's still a long way to go for this, uh, for this, this particular drug. What, what does that mean? I mean, why does no one seem to care about, about the fact that actually this is quite early news and there's, there's, there's quite a long way to go in the process of getting this drug approved? Yeah, well, traders, I think, don't really care. I mean, I, I personally don't care. Uh, you know, it would be really nice if this did save a lot of lives. Um, but as from a trading perspective, I'm not really interested in what the business does. Uh, the business, in my view, is like a life support machine for the equity to trade, if that makes sense. It's two separate things. Um, so the business itself doesn't really matter. What, what matters is the price and, more importantly, what's driving that price and what other people think about that. Um, so if you can find an RNS where you might think it's complete rubbish, but if lots of people think that it's going to be really good, um, you can trade that. And very often there'll be companies that put out RNSs where the bad news is all at the bottom, but the punters haven't read it. They've only read the headlines and the share price spikes. Um, so really, you just look in, in a way, speculating and using charts and supply and demand to, to get an edge and try and trade that. Um, there was one, uh, one of my friends called Tony, uh, known as Space Robot on Twitter. He had a very interesting trade on this stock because he lives local in the area, and Synergen's drug, SNG001, was being trialled in Southampton Hospital, and he actually asked a load of people um, that he knew in the area if, if they'd heard anything, and one woman got back to him and said quite a few people were recovering uh, in Southampton Hospital, and she didn't actually know this about the trial or you know, specific to Synergen, uh, and I'm sure he knew the risks because, you know, he's a good trader and you've got to manage your downside. But he actually bought on the basis of that information, uh, took the risk and, and was well rewarded for it. So he was up 100% before the stock had even opened. Um, so I think it's quite interesting if you're willing to do some work, uh, you can actually find an edge because it was a double blind test. So it doesn't really matter if you know which drug is which. If If you're hearing that, people are recovering um, a lot faster than normal, then maybe uh, it could be the drug. And I'm, I'm certainly not suggesting that that is a strategy that everyone should employ, um, but it is strategic thinking. And if you can do things like that, um, you have an edge in this business. You know, the market isn't efficient in small caps. Yeah, I've, I've often uh, advocated the scuttlebutt approach for sort of fundamental investing, you know, looking at a company, mm-hmm. if you're interested in buying it for the long term, sounds like it works for trading as well. Why not? Why not? It can do. It can do. I mean, it's an incredibly risky trade. Um, but sometimes, yeah, if you have an edge and you play that edge out, you, you can make money in the long run. You know, so well done to him. Should we talk about Motive Bio, which is kind of the opposite situation to Synergen? You know, they, they, there was a, a massive expectation of, uh, of trial success uh, in the case of this company, and it didn't materialise. T- t- tell us a little bit about that situation and sort of how that played out. Yeah, so Motive Bio had Icloprim, and I can't remember... What it did, uh, but it was a it was a drug, and it passed Revive One, a phase three trial, and it went through Revive Two as well. So it was a second trial, uh, identical to Revive One, but in a different place. 
And it passed that. So the expectation was that the FDA, who'd actually helped Motif Bio develop this revived trial, would fast track it through the process. And a lot of people were buying in, in anticipation of that. It just didn't materialize. For whatever reason, the FDA decided that they wouldn't approve the drug. Uh, and it took an 80% hit on the share price on the day. Um, I mean, that is, that is the risk with these things. You know, they can go either way. You can either make a lot of money or you can lose a lot of money. So, yeah, anyone trading these things needs to be aware of the downside risk. Yeah, so, so you mentioned in your piece that, that having slumped 80% on this, uh, mm-hmm. this failed trial, then there, there was a bounce back. And you, you referred to scalping earlier. I mean, t- tell us about this strategy, how, how, you, how, you, how you execute this one. Yeah, so whenever there's some really bad news, the, the share price will often really crash. Um, and it'll overshoot because everyone's rushing for the exit. Uh, the market makes will take it all the way down. Others, you know, that you've got institutions selling. Uh, when at some point, people will start to think, oh, actually, this is oversold. Um, I'm going to get in now. And if you look at the intraday chart of Motif back, I think it was February 2019, it actually rose from, I think it was five pence to 15 pence. So there, there is massive opportunity. And these things, if you can get in and, and scalp. Um, one of the things on SETQX stocks that's good to look for is when all of a sudden the market makers are bidding for stock quite heavily in the market, but it's really difficult to buy. And, and that's sometimes I'll get on the phone to my broker, ask them to deal direct with the market maker because they're not obliged to offer online, remember. Or you can use a leveraged product like a CFD Uh, use it over the counter to get stock at that price. Um, So it's quite handy because you can get in when it's really difficult to buy. You can wait for that uplift, the reversion to the mean snapback trade and get out. And you don't have to take on the risk of the overnight gap risk. You can just trade it. Um, So definitely trade the reaction. Don't don't get in for the, um, the catalyst. Or if you do want to get in for the catalyst, ride it up, but get out. Uh, well before the announcement, if you can. Uh, but of course, you never know when that announcement's going to be. Uh, so personally, I'll, I'll always trade the reaction. Phase three, oil drills, uh, profit warnings. I never rarely take earnings risk unless I've got a good reason to hold. Uh, I just don't see the point in taking that risk. I mean, why? You can make money without the risk. I mean, there, there is still risk, but you aren't taking as much overnight risk if that makes sense. Yeah, it absolutely does. You must be um, casting your eyes across the, uh, the small cap farmer space now um, that, you know, we are seeing some lots of news coming out about uh, COVID drug tests. And yeah, th- th- this, this is going to be a recurring theme, I suspect. I think so. Yeah, over the past few months, anything with COVID in the title has done pretty well. I mean, it's like Bitcoin was in 2017. You see an RNS that mentions Bitcoin or crypto. You don't even open it. You just buy, <laughs> knowing that everyone else is going to pile in. Um, and there was one this morning that I actually missed. Um, it, it was Symphony Environmental Technologies, um, up 100% on the day. And it even said coronavirus in the title, and I missed it. Never mind. I'm sure there'll be plenty more opportunities. But it does, I mean, I'm sure I, there will. I, I've always, you know, for me, these kind of, as we say, you know, binary uh, outcome small cap farmer stocks. If I, I personally would not hold them. We know someone who did hold quite a lot of them, mm-hmm. which was Neil Woodford. And you, uh, you, yeah. you don't hold back about Mr. Woodford in your, uh, your piece. Um, I don't know. I really don't like him. I think he abused <laughs> the trust of a lot of people. But this sounds like a trader's market to me. 
you know, right. That's brilliant. If, 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 you wanted to, if you wanted to build up, uh, if you wanted to own these companies, you, you presume, I would imagine, you'd have to have a huge portfolio of them because 90% of them are not going to succeed. No, they're not. And most end companies don't succeed uh, because they're garbage. Other directors just milk shareholders for capital, pay themselves huge salaries. Um, that's how these co- uh, companies tend to operate, lifestyle companies. Uh, you can trade them, but you don't want to invest in them. Yeah, sounds sensible. So thank, thank you very much, Michael. Lots of uh, really interesting insight that uh, I'm sure our listeners can uh, learn from. Yeah, thank you, John. Yeah, and if, if people want to learn more, they can read my free book on shiftingshares.com. And I've also released my UK online stock trading course as well. Uh, so feel free to check that out. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Michael. Yeah, thanks, John. Take care. And now we're going to go from one red-hot healthcare stock to one that's perhaps gone a little bit cold this week. Megan spoke to Paul Swinney and Liz Dixon from Tristel, uh, whose trading update this week saw the shares fall. Paul and Liz, thanks very much for joining me. Um, you talk in your update yesterday about a stress test on manufacturing in the last few months. Is it not just on manufacturing, I imagine a stress test on management as well? Yes, it's been a, it's been a, a for all everybody in the whole country and around the world it's been a testing time um but we i think have fared pretty well uh we were designated as a critical supplier to the nhs and we're informed of that pretty much immediately so we uh have maintained our manufacturing uh operation throughout the past four months um as with lots of companies in the disinfectant and hygiene space uh, being able to source components and in, in continue the you know achieve continuity of, of our manufacturing and supply of products to the NHS and to ship overseas that was a challenge um, our supply chain is not overly dependent upon external manufacturers uh, we make most we make all of our liquids ourselves we do most of our filling and packaging ourselves where we have any supply third-party supply is from within the uk so we found ourselves in a very strong position in terms of not of both being able to meet demand for product especially the surface disinfectant products that we sell and are in the process of expanding our product range so we were able to capitalize upon a surge in demand from the nhs and from hospitals overseas as well um, and at the same time not run out of stock and a lot of companies did that were supplying disinfectant and cleaning products to the to the nhs in particular mm. so we found ourselves in a, in a in a good place interestingly during the period um, the first few weeks of lockdown, we were um, the demand rocketed for some of our surface products. To so we had to uh, redesign the pack forms, and it was a, a decision that to, to maximise the component tree. And it really was a case of um, necessity is the mother of invention. So we discovered how quickly we could make changes, implement them, get the product out the door by just you know, four or five of us sitting around the table, dealing with the design, getting straight into production to the extent that we were actually on the production line ourselves. It was mm-hmm. everyone who was in the in at the company premises was on the production line producing product because it was in such high demand. So it was a, a real 
an, an energizing period of time. Um, very taxing for, for management, for our entire management team, but really very energizing as well. Were you prepared for such a strong demand for, for the surface disinfectants in particular? I, I, we couldn't have anticipated what what did happen in in March and then into April. But we, we found ourselves in a position where we were, were well placed to meet this huge surge. And it was a huge surge in demand. Mm-hmm. Um, it was pretty indiscriminate buying, I would say, by mm-hmm. uh, hospitals competing with each other um, for any available surface disinfectant products that could be accessed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we saw the NHS supply chain and the intervention of, of government from, um, uh, they got the army involved, I think, mm-hmm. to change the process of of, uh, of supply. So that some order was restored to, the, you know, the whole supply chain system to the NHS during the course of probably April and May. And I'd say things have returned pretty much to normal now. But it was a frenetic few weeks yeah, yeah. when... Uh, everybody kind of panicked I guess is the best mm. way to describe mm. it. It must have been a really fascinating insight into how I mean obviously I know you've got that insight anyway into how the NHS o- operates and orders stuff but in times of I mean severe <laughs> trauma I suppose mm-hmm. um, having that insight into <laughs> into how individual trusts and the NHS as a whole were, operates. I, I think it became quite clear that um, actually the NHS doesn't operate as a whole. Uh, we, we were seeing every, as Paul says, every hospital was uh, every man for himself, effectively, to uh, to the extent where you know we, we we advised just anecdotally one of the hospitals that uh, that is our customer um, that um, uh, that we uh, that the, the system of purchasing product is likely to change, and they went into the the NHS supply chain portal and bought all the surface disinfectants that they could get their hands on so it was there was no you know it, it definitely wasn't a, a fair sharing out of, of product it was you know every man for himself wow. but it um and, and we did see that nhs supply chain um was overwhelmed absolutely overwhelmed by the demand um and so seeing the government step in and get involved was no surprise to us mm. when it happened mm. Um, going forward, you mentioned in your update uh, the focus on sort of extreme cleanliness um, and dis- disinfecting protocols might actually halt the use of Tristel products, not necessarily the surface, but the, the implement disinfecting. Um, mm. Can you explain that a bit more? Why, why, why is that that you, there is that sort of reticence? Well, I think what, what we have observed is that um, hospitals diverted all of their resources, people, bed space, equipment to the COVID wards to uh, prepare themselves for the great influx of patients that was experienced. But I think actually our insight to that would be that the worst scenarios that were planned for didn't in actual fact materialize across all hospitals, which was a great relief for us all, obviously. That meant shutting down and and, and, um, closing down uh, lists for the types of procedures that we're involved with. So uh, key areas for us in the hospital are the ear, nose and throat outpatient um, uh, department of that area, gynecology where ultrasound probes are used in examinations, um, ophthalmology uh, where uh, small lenses come into contact with the cornea and all of, for various different reasons, 
these uh, appointments you know, would have been cancelled and patients told to wait until uh, circumstances changed. And the demand for our medical device disinfectant products is entirely driven by patient procedures. So it's a use of an instrument on a patient and after the instrument's been used, it has to be disinfected. So if patient procedure numbers go down, the use of our medical device disinfectants go down. But what it means, of course, is that there's a, an individual in the United Kingdom that has a problem with swallowing, for example, and wanted to be, needs to be scoped, and they've had their examination deferred until some point in time in the future. Of course, it will recover. And we can see, because we have a broad exposure to many countries, some countries are recovering quicker than others. It all depends how they fare through the pandemic. It's all determined by things like waiting room management. If you would, you, you'd be, we're all very familiar with what it might be like to go into an outpatient's department in a busy hospital and they're jammed with people and lots of chairs and those chairs are now being thinned out and the number of people that can be in a waiting room at any point in time has been reduced um, dramatically. The Every time a patient has been seen, if they've had a scope, procedure that goes with the scope going into the nasal passage once they leave the room <clears throat> that used to be it but now the room has to be cleaned down by the nursing staff that takes more time so there's just a whole knock-on effect throughout through the whole supply chain really of patient needing a procedure to a doctor being able to provide it and the nursing staff being able to get the patient out and back into so how about the the surface stuff obviously i mean amazing amazing few months of the surface thing have you got any concerns that you've sort of borrowed that growth from the neck from like the coming years did it just do have you squeezed growth into a smaller time frame that's a good question and the answer is no because it, 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 the the most the most sort of pivotal part of our business strategy over the course of the next five years is to grow our surface disinfection revenues so i'd rather than borrowed from this financial period that we're now in i'd say we've just got off to a, a kickstart okay so um, we've acquired customers that we would have had to fight for because of the circumstances of the last several months so i'd say we've had a kickstart rather than borrowed from the current year revenues mm-hmm. and it's an international strategy is it with the surface disinfectant Absolutely, absolutely. You know, we're very pleased with the uh, with the with the thinking that's gone on for several years in the design of the product range. Uh, you know, the the plethora of disinfectants that are available to hospitals and cleaning agents. We're the only company in the world that is working with chlorine dioxide for medical devices. Also holds true for hospital surfaces as well. So I think almost by you know, I think one can deduce that if the dis- our chlorine dioxide chemistry is suitable and appropriate for use on a medical instrument that's going inside the bottle body, it's most certainly of of, of the highest efficacy um, for use on hospital surfaces. And um, it, the range has been designed from scratch over the course of the last couple of years with an environmental ecological focus. Um, most disinfectant products that are used in hospitals contain plastic of one kind or another. Great majority of them are disposable throwaway items. 
if you think of a trigger sprayer, just as we buy for the home from a from gross from from a supermarket, you use it once. You throw the plastic container away once you've emptied it. Plastic wipes that are used, the wipes, the impregnated wetted wipes that are used in their in their tens of millions by hospitals, mm-hmm. not only in this country but worldwide, they are for the most part uh, actually made of plastic. They're used once indiscriminately in many instances with very little control over their use and then thrown away. So the whole, the theme, the, the key theme of our cash product range, which is the brand that we've given to it, is that the plastics that we use are not only recyclable, of course, so there's careful choice of the plastic used, but everything is reusable. Mm, okay. So containers are not to be thrown away, they're be to, to be kept. We're viewing it very much as the hardware element, the assets that hospitals will buy from us are the dispensing containers, the storage containers, the distribution method to get the disinfectant um, around a ward. And then the, the hospital can then make its own choice of the substrate or the spreader, the wiper it uses. Um, and it can be, and we would encourage hospitals then to use pulp-based and sustainable and renewable types of wipes rather than these plastic wipes that have to be used. Let's uh, let's talk about the US. Obviously, not uh, I know I know it's not your favourite topic, but um, yeah, let's. Uh, what what what's going on there? Is there is there any sort of positive outlook at all for getting your products launched there? Yes, there was definitely a positive outlook that hasn't changed. Uh, we are as confident today as we ever have been that we will be able to enter the United States market with our chlorine dioxide chemistry. And in fact, um, I think we might. We have probably broadened the possibilities for the future through uh, the work that we've done in designing and developing the cash range. But that's another topic for another day. But the the project that we have underway for getting chlorine dioxide approved by the FDA for use as a high-level disinfectant on exactly the same types of devices that we disinfect in all other countries in which we're involved around the world is on track. We have not down tools in any way because anything that is desktop-based can continue and has continued to be worked on by our team and microbiology labs in the States. We just have to face the reality that a couple of very important pieces of the project that need still to be completed do require us to be able to jump on planes and go to the United States and be present so that we can walk into hospitals and work with clinicians to um, attend um, you know, a, a, a list with a gynecologist. And until such time as we can do that, we can't wrap up those elements of mm. the sort of work that needs to be done to submission. Is, so is that work that you would have done in the last few months, do you think? I would unquestionably, mm. people from Tristel UK would have been in mm. the United States mm-hmm. in the first half of this year. We had flights booked that had to be cancelled. We had, you know, sessions booked with hospitals that had to be cancelled. So, um, you know, I just want to say it's a a difficult subject because only to the extent to which people would love Tristel to have a presence in North America. We will have a presence in North America. We have approvals from the Environmental Protection Agency, which I, you know, looking back, I wish we'd had activated because that's the surfaces part of our business and the FDA is the Mm -hmm. medical devices part of our future potential and if we'd have been geared up to 
to participate in the surface disinfection, um, you know, craziness that I'm sure went on in the United States over the course of the last four or five months, we, we would have benefited from that just as we have in the United Kingdom. But we weren't, and but we, you know, something to look forward to. Do you, uh, are you worried that was a missed opportunity then? Well, as I look back, I can't say anything other than it was a missed opportunity, but who was to say that mm. uh, there was circumstances? I wrote something and actually we had a comment from a, a doctor. I was wondering if you uh, had any thoughts on this. And he said, it, I mean, he was very positive about Tristel, especially its potential in China. But then he did also say, I would not trust America at all with their closed shop mentality. And it would be unwise to have any expectations of approval there or factor anything into the share price for such an event. Have you got any uh, any response to that? Well, I, th- I think that's, um, I think, you know, that viewpoint has got, some real merit we don't as an organization write into our future plans financial Mm. um, strategic plan financial plan well certainly our financial plan we we would write into it no contribution whatsoever other than the costs of trying to prosecute um this fda approval and you know mentally uh, uh, very honest and straightforward mentally i i I sideline it completely. Mm-hmm. You know, we have a fantastic future all around the world. If we get into the United States, which we, um, with all our energy and creativity, uh, seek to do, but I completely mentally sideline it. I mean, I'm, that, that's me. Yeah. I mean, the market does what the market wants to do, but um, we have a fantastic business with huge opportunity all around the world. And the United States is a is will be what it will be. How much does that? And, and they, um, sorry, Megan. I will. Look, I will echo that chap's comment, though. It it is very protectionist. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they use antiquated methods for hospital dis- disinfection and decontamination. Um, but that's you know we, we won't give up on getting into the market there. Uh just just on the on the growth thing how much does the growth how much does the outlook with um rely on growth in china it's a it's a relatively small piece of our of our business um sales in the year that ended on 30th of june approached a half a million pounds um which we're pretty pleased with but i mean it's a, it's a, that's a half a million pounds out of 31 and a half million pounds so it's a very small piece it represents a very significant potential. I would say a greater potential than the United States. Uh, again, in our own way that we look at our, our future over the course of the next five years, I would, and acknowledging what I've just said, sort of sidelining the United States, China is definitely a piece of our future. Mm-hmm. We're there, we have licenses, we have approvals, we have customers, we have an office. We'll have more than one office come the end of this financial year. We have people in Beijing, in Shanghai, Guangzhou. We're building a sales team. Uh, we have a presence in China, and we will build out that presence. How has that presence? How has that? How have communications with China and and I mean how they're operating been? And I mean obviously <laughs> there's a lot of talk about China's hygiene and things like that in in the last few months. Have you seen any shift in demand for? Has there been an uptick in in focus on hygiene and your kind of products? Well, what we have 
our, all of the products that we have licensed and sell in China are medical device disinfectants. So we're not in, we have some involvement with hospital surface disinfection and we had some approvals that were fast tracked and we made some shipments of our um, surface disinfectant product, which we called Fuse to the Chinese military, they were the buyer, I think, um, during the course of the past four months. But uh, the main focus is and will continue to be on the medical device disinfection side. One of our key areas around the world is in women's health and the use of ultrasound probes in vaginal examinations. And it's one of the most uh, largest revenue contributors um, to our medical device sales globally. And standards in China will rise to the levels that are commonplace in all other countries. So it's not uncommon for a probe to be used in such an examination and not disinfected after it's used, which is a rather gruesome thought. That's horrible. The standards that are applied in all countries are that it should be high-level disinfected, and we are one of the few high-level disinfectants that are appropriate and properly validated for that type of procedure. At some point in time, um, practice in China will change. I mean, mm. it's just, an, it, it, you know, I think we would all agree it's an unacceptable practice. Oh, yeah. I think most women in China would agree it's an unacceptable mm. practice. There's an element of education, um, but there have to be products that are available and there have to be um, protocols in place that a standard has to be adhered to. At some point in time, it will. And with education, if and if and when education does improve, and and, uh, and these products become more crucial, are, are there not any concerns that a Chinese company might just simply do it, do what you're doing, um, and uh, and do it cheaper, and and you you won't be needed there? Well, I mean, of course, it's a possibility, but if you, if you look at the landscape of ultrasound in China, there are Chinese manufacturers of ultrasound equipment but the the great majority of ultrasound systems that are used throughout china which we are potentially the product to disinfect them with are from european and american manufacturers so you know there are chinese manufacturers of ultrasound equipment but the market share is the great market share is held by the likes of ge and siemens and overseas manufacturers well you know there are some things that the chinese do very well and there are some things that i don't think that they would participate in um now ge is our partner or we are ge's partner in in china and they sell our duo um, high level disinfectant for ultrasound probes for us and in partnership with us so uh, you know uh, it, it, it's a potential threat I, I don't think it's one that would materialize probably um, and uh, the great advantage that we have, and it's all part of what we would describe as our defensive mode, is that hospitals won't buy high-performance disinfectants that are used on their medical devices unless the medical device manufacturers say that they're sanctioned for use, because otherwise you could damage them. Um, so, you know, there are lots of defenses that we have put in place over the course of the last 15 years that a copycat would not be able to access or, or not be able to breach. Okay. Uh, just very briefly, uh, the outlook, have you got any any nerves, in the, as in the short-term outlook, the next few months? I mean, the market didn't respond particularly well to the trading update yesterday. It, it, do, you think that was, do you think that was fair? Do you think there, there is a sort of 
nervous energy looking forward or do you think it's it's going to be a, another strong few months i think we are performing very strongly through this month i expect to perform very strongly next month and the month after that and we were taken aback by the market's reaction yesterday so but i don't know uh, the uh, the broker's forecast for this year i think is uh, 34 and a half million pounds um we're trading uh in line with that, albeit that it's only the first month of the year, I could I can imagine a scenario where our medical device sales return to the levels and the growth trajectory that we would have in, in, anticipated that they were on before COVID hit. And I, as I said, I think we had a we've had a, a boost in our cash business plan because of COVID. We've acquired customers that I wouldn't have expected to have acquired so quickly. And we could have a very favourable tailwind. But who's to say? <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll see. Maybe we'll catch up in six months' time and, <laughs> and uh, we can see. Uh-huh. Well, thanks very much for your time. Really good to speak to you. Thanks, Megan. So we've just heard there from uh, Tristel's Chief Executive and Chief Financial Officer. Um, now we're going to hear from Phil Oakley, uh, who has some views on this company, which, uh, which you outlined in a, in a long uh, alpha piece back in uh, October 2018. How are you doing, Phil? Yeah, all right. Thank you. So, so did you have a chance to have a look at the update this week? Shares came off a bit. I think I, I don't really have a, a massive problem with this business. I, I, I think... I, I have a few issues with the way that, you know, the management believe that profits should be stated. You know, it believes that, you know, share-based payments don't matter. But the underlying business, I think, is a reasonably good one. What, what do you like about it? it? It's managed to carve itself out a very profitable niche. You know, for those who don't know this business, it's essentially in the business of um, disinfecting um, mainly things in hospitals. So the bulk of the business is medical devices, is disinfecting medical devices. And in a normal year, that's getting on for like sort of 70% of the sales. And then it does things like um, surfaces. So things like hospital surfaces, laboratory surfaces, disinfectants. And then it will sell disinfectants to um, vets, animal animal labs, that kind of thing. Um, the bulk of the bulk of the business is basically selling in into hospitals and it does things slightly differently in terms of disinfectant, particularly medical devices. So it tends to use wipes, whereas a lot of, uh, and it uses this sort of, um, I think it's chlorine dioxide is the key ingredient that it uses. And it's the only, only company that does this and it has a lot of patents that um, protect its products from competition. And the standard way of um, disinfecting medical devices that are used by surgeons and so on has been to use heat. And this is this is obviously a, a way of not using heat. And the business has been pretty good at um, generating quite decent revenue growth and creating and and selling in selling into lots of different countries. Um, across the world and the profits profits are pretty good you know sort of high teens teens profit margin decent cash generation and it's been been a pretty good share to own to be honest my my only issue with it in the past has been whether it could grow 
and also you know how how the management presented their profits they they said that sh- they think that paying people in shares is a free lunch and i i don't like that and i don't like the sign i don't like that kind of attitude but but as i say i think underlying business i think is fine so what's the mechanism here with the with the share based payments how how does it uh, impact the profitability you know we've we've had new standards come in i mean lots of companies pay their employees pay their senior management in shares and essentially the value of those shares the accounting standard says that's you know there's that's a real cost that is a real cost of doing business and i agree um some management teams and tristel's not the only one there's plenty of plenty of uh, of companies who seem to think that share based payments don't matter um they think because it's not cash that it's um it's free it's it's, it's not a cost and if you look at if you look at it from the perspective of a, of a shareholder in a company, it's a tra- it's a, it is a direct transfer of value away from you. That there isn't there is no disputing that it's future dilution of your shareholding. And um, you know if if it was you know if it was so good, then why not just pay everybody in shares then? Um, we can have we can have businesses that are fantastically profitable. I just think it's a nonsense. I, mean, I, th- I think you wrote, you know, a few years back that, that actually um, it really flattered the growth this business was achieving as well. Two years ago, it did. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure what what it is going to look like going forward. Yeah, I mean, they've they've had a bit of a boom period, uh, understandably. What with uh, what with COVID nineteen. I mean, in the absolute sweet spot of uh, of this crisis. Um, I mean, you, you mentioned that growth was the other thing that you were worried about. Um, so, so talk us through your concerns there. I mean, you know, it, it obviously has this niche. It's a, it's a very profitable niche. Um, you know, and with those patients, you would have thought that the growth opportunities were massive, particularly right now. You know, looking at the statement this week, it seems that uh, my concerns were unfounded. You know, the business has been growing, growing very well. Um, even you know, even if you strip out the um, the effect of COVID nineteen, you know, there's actually some quite decent underlying revenue growth in this business. And you know, I think they're saying that you know they expect sales for the year to be up, you know, over twenty two percent, so up about just over five million. And um, the net effect of COVID is about plus one and a half. So there's still you know. Over over fifteen percent, or around, well, certainly sort of mid low teens sales growth. If you strip out the impact of COVID, and what and co- the the impact of COVID has been to shift the mix of the business because fewer people have been having operations. There's been less demand for disinfecting surgical instruments, but there's been more demand for disinfecting hospital beds. And various various bits and you know things like waiting rooms in hospitals and all that kind of thing. So this is what they call their surface disinfectant business. And this looks like not only being a one-off positive, but they they they've released some quite good news about picking up um, more customers for this surface disinfectant business in not only the UK but in Europe and places like China. And it looks like it's going to give a sustainable boost. So I, I think that's, that looks pretty good. But obviously there's been a fall in the sort of 
the the day to day business from from um, sterilising surgical equipment. Um, and you know, and that I think they said it was about a half a million hit uh, the revenue line from that. But that that might continue for quite some time. And I guess this sort of relates to to the whole how quickly do we come back from COVID as as a, as a kind of an, as an economy type question. Yeah, and it's a, it's a big issue not just for Tristel but for you know virtually every company. And you, you know you're seeing you know you're seeing companies. And I've been looking at you know I've been looking at companies you know yesterday and today that have released results this week, and they're all drawing people's attention to this risk of you know how quickly how quickly the normality comes back normal sort of behavior patterns and working patterns and therefore demand patterns for their products and services and the other thing as well is you know this whole thing about and it, going off slightly at a tangent but it's a relevant point you know what happens when all this government support so you've got furlough in this country you've got a lot of support in america which is dropping off and you know what what tends to happen when you have a period like this in businesses it's a lot of businesses learn how to cope with with fewer people or getting by with with stuff that they haven't used before and they they see it as a way to use use less going forward and this is this is a big unknown going back to Tristel about 40% of the revenues of this business are in the UK. And so clearly there's a, a huge amount of, of selling going into the National Health Service. And, you know, how quickly, it's not just how quickly surgical operations come back, but you have, you're going to have a period for long periods of time where, you know, you're not going to have crowded waiting rooms. You know, you're going to have a lot, fewer people process through the system because everything's going to slow down through social distancing, cleaning examination rooms after each patient. It's going to slow it down. And this is going to happen for some time. And so I think it's right to say that, you know, the level of underlying growth, particularly in the UK, because I think the UK is being perceived quite rightly to be a little bit slow and behind everybody else in doing stuff, and um, yeah, this this will be a bit of a drag, I think. I mean, you know, on the face of it, this this, this statement looked pretty good, and you know, as you say, it's it's a it's a it's a great business with some some pretty powerful economic moats. I know you love that word, Phil. Um, yeah, what, yeah. What, 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 why why what spooked people? I mean, why why are the shares falling? You know, these shares are very expensive. Okay, they they trade on they trade on about thirty four times forecast earnings, but that's not that's not uncommon. These there are lots of good companies that trade on that kind of that kind of multiple or, or even higher. I don't know. I I think I think there was a you know this was a share that got talked about a lot on bulletin boards. You know, disinfectant was in vogue. A phrase you never thought you'd hear. And it's you know the shares have had a good run. And um, you know, often when the shares have had a good run, they need they need a little bit of an extra kick to keep them running. And I and I don't think this this update provided that that kicker that was needed. You know, I don't I don't think you'd see many analysts upgrading their profit forecasts after this. And I think you know I think the talk about you know what what people will have latched onto is what we've just been talking about. You know, there's that note of caution in the outlook statement about 
about the UK particularly, about, you know, we are dealing with the core business here. The core business is surgical instruments, disinfection. That, that is probably what caused the shares to, to, to sell off. I think it's quite interesting. We're looking across the, the Atlantic at some of what's going on in uh, in the US reporting season at the moment, and you know we we see we see even punchier valuations out there, and certainly among some of the tech companies, you know, healthcare has gone, uh, you know, parabolic. Um, do, do you think these companies that appear to be benefiting from COVID, people have just bought them indiscriminately, and now they, they are essentially priced for expectations that they cannot possibly meet as the world returns to something approaching normality. Yeah, I think they're definitely priced for expectations. Um, whether those expectations can be met, time will tell. But I thought it was very interesting that the sort of, I think um, one of the head quant guys at BlackRock apparently came out this week and said, valuation is no longer a problem worth solving. Uh, you know, In short, valuation doesn't matter. To me, I, I think that was a... I mean, it's a strange. That's what it appears to be, anyway. You know, you look at you look at some of these shares, particularly tech shares, and you think valuation doesn't matter. It's we 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 have moved into certain parts of the market, particularly the tech market, where it's essentially just become it's very story driven. It's the theme. It's a theme. It's a theme that people like. It's a story that people like. The, The story is quite credible about a faster shift towards more adoption of tech and people have bought into it and it's become a classic momentum trade and and it's pushed and it's pushed valuations very high it's made the S&P 500 index very concentrated amongst a few shares and yes it's not you know if if for me I mean, for me personally, it's, just, it's something that I struggle with because because you know I, I come from a viewpoint where valuation does matter. I, I think you know I've been guilty of paying too much attention to valuation and letting not being you know not being bold enough to pay up for extremely good companies. That's probably my biggest mistake I've ever made. But there are but there are limits. I mean, you know, you look at things like, you know, cash flow yields, free cash flow yields, which is what a lot of people look at. And you look at, you know, even how, the, you know, the distortion of like share-based payments. Share-based payments I talked about a few weeks ago, flatter free cash flow. And you're looking at, you know, you're looking at many shares now that are trading on, you know, 2% free cash flow yield. And, you know, I... I tend to look at businesses, companies, you know, as businesses and look look at what you're getting back as if you were buying the business outright. So if I, I'm buying a, a business that's 2% free cash flow yield, then if it doubles its free cash flows, I'm getting 4% yield on what I paid. And it's like, okay, well, that's all right in a world where in, interest rates um, – you know, virtually nothing or negative or even on some bonds and inflation so far is low. But it's still not a particularly high rate of return. And, you know, when you when you are going in, at, you know, at an, an initial return of 2%, you're, 
you need that growth to to come off to 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 make that investment stack up. You know, you certainly would if you were a business. You know, and this is this is the problem. Main issue I have now is that there is a disconnect between investing in the stock market and investing in businesses. If I'm a business and I buy a company for two percent free cash flow yield, that's not going to add much to my profits. I don't have the luxury of then having everybody pile into the shares and make me a lot of money because I'm reliant on the business to make me the money. And this is where I think that the stock market is getting carried away. And we've seen this before. You know, we saw this 20 years ago. And at least at least today, we have real businesses with real profits. You know, we're not, we're not dealing in sort of fantasy speculation. But, you know, even, even so, I, you know, there are limits. And... You know, uh, you know, there have been a few commentators out there who go on about, you know, things like market timing and, you know, buy and hold and all this thing. thing. Easy to, this, is a, this is a very common statement when, when markets are good and also people talking their own book. I would love to know how many, how many fund managers with their own money Running, running funds with highly valued shares in them would actually be prepared to put fresh money into the stock market today at these valuations. And my, my guess is that quite a few of them would not. So it sounds like this, that statement, valuations don't matter, you know, perhaps that's the watershed moment because, you know, you look at the reaction to, to some of these earnings disappointments that we're seeing, valuations and that valuation based on the, the, the earnings outlook, which is perhaps more modest than people have been assuming, um, is, is causing people to, to, to sell. So, so maybe, maybe this is the moment. Maybe, maybe. I mean, can you imagine though, John, if you're chief executive of a company and you, you're listed on the stock exchange and you, you, go, in, you, know, you go to the analyst meeting and you, you, you know, you're on a conference call and you say, oh, I've just made this acquisition. I've got no idea how much money, money it makes, but you know, we, think, we think it's got you know, real big pick. We like the big picture here. We think, we think it's going to be great. And we've, you know, we've paid a fortune, but we don't know how much money it's ultimately going to make. But we hope it'll be okay. They'd be absolutely crucified by analysts for saying something like that, and rightly so. Mm. But in the stock market, you can get away with it because because you're dealing with a completely different dynamic. But at the moment, this is a momentum. This is a momentum trade, and you know, it's very difficult to fight against momentum. But what we do know about momentum, either for markets or for individual shares, is that the momentum eventually hits a brick wall and then it becomes a cliff edge because, because there are no marginal buyers. And that's, that's the chief, chief danger and it's getting, it seems to be getting more dangerous every week. And on that cheery note, uh, thank you very much, Phil. Um, very useful insights there into Tristo and, uh, and uh, the wider market, which I, I don't think those two stories are unrelated. Thanks, John. Thanks, Phil. That's all we have time for this week, I'm afraid. But before we sign off, let me just talk you through the contents of the latest issue of the Investors Chronicle. In his education piece this week, Phil has been looking at the pros and cons of the various metrics used to measure a company's performance. Algie Hall's 
been on the hunt for cheap small cap growth shares in his stock screen using Jim Slater's famous Zulu principle. Mary McDougall is looking at the hidden costs of commission-free trading platforms and Dave Bax has been looking at which investment trusts are best placed to survive the dividend drought. Alongside Michael Taylor in the comments section we have the usual insights from Chris Dillow, Simon Thompson and Mr Bearble who's looking at why national savings and investments are a great way to de-risk your portfolio. And alongside Sinead Jen and Tristel in the news section, Nilushi Karuna Ratner is taking a look at the outlook for the jobs market after a series of updates from the listed recruiters. And Emma Powell has looked at yet another government measure to try and get the housing market moving, this time in the form of potential leasehold reforms. And the main feature this week, written by Megan as it happens, Education's Transformation, continues our New Future series, this time looking at how COVID could change the way we educate and what it means for listed companies in the education space. Thanks to our guests this week, Harriet's Michael and Phil, and of course Paul Swinney and Liz Dixon from Tristel. Thanks of course to my co-host Megan, and thank you all for listening. Take care. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.